Hello, and welcome to the Lacrosse Matrix podcast, where stats make the story. Please enter the matrix now. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Lacrosse Matrix podcast, where stats make the story. As always, I am your host, Adam Levy, and thank you again for joining me for another awesome episode of the Lacrosse Matrix podcast. This is episode number 55, and it is another playoff edition and another feature of an NLL legend, an NLL Hall of Famer, a guy who has won so many championships in his time. He won a handful with the Buffalo Bandits, but the majority of them with the Toronto Rock. And there is a very interesting correlation that we will get into, or a connection, I guess would be the better word, to the feature guest of our last episode, episode number 54, Dallas Elliott, because Dallas stopped our featured guest, Jim Veltman, from winning two championships, and we will dive into that once we are inside the matrix. But for now, let's start with the numbers of the week before we dive headfirst into the matrix and search for some nuggets. And wouldn't you know it, once again, we have multiple numbers of the week. When you are talking about guys of such a high caliber who have achieved so much, it's hard to narrow your numbers of the week down to just one. So your numbers of the week this week are 2,517 and 340. So let's go search for more nuggets and learn more about the story, the history, and the excellence of the Buffalo Bandits, but more importantly, the Toronto Rocks, Jim Veltman. Let's get after it. Veltman played in the National Lacrosse League from 1992 through to 2008. It's interesting, I did mention Dallas Elliott earlier in the intro, and those guys both ended their career in 2008, so it's also interesting that they have that connection as well. But Jim Veltman playing from 1992 to 2008 for 16 seasons. Now, he did not play in the 1997 season, and in our discussion, we get into why that was, and I think it's a very admirable reason why he didn't play, and uh, it's an awesome story to hear if you don't know it already, and you will learn about that in just a few moments. But Jim Veltman is an eight time champion in the National Lacrosse League. You heard that right, an eight-time champion, and his championships, his first one won in 1992, but his last one won in 2005, a 13-year gap between championships, and as we dive deeper into the nuggets regarding Jim Veltman and his career, you'll understand how influential he was and, and what a piece he was to each of the championship teams that he's been a part of. He won championships in 1992, 1993, 1996 with the Buffalo Bandits. And then before, and then as we'll hear, he transitions to being a member of the Toronto Rock where he won championships in 1999, 2000, 2002, 2003, and 2005. Now, just to point out how unbelievable it is to win eight championships for one player, if you look at the four major sports leagues, and of course, I'd love to be including the National Lacrosse League in this, and one day we will get there, but if you look at the history in the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, the National Hockey League, and Major League Baseball, and those sports combined have been around for hundreds of years with such deep, illustrious history, so many amazing players, but only 18 total players across all four leagues in those leagues' histories have won eight or more championships, the most having been won by the Boston Celtics' Bill Russell and the Montreal Canadiens' Henry Richard, and then other notable players such as Yogi Berra, Sam Jones, you have Joe DiMaggio, and so many other awesome players around 
sports that have been so good in their careers. So for Jim Veltman to have eight championships, it really just speaks to how awesome and how rare that is in professional sports. Now, if Veltman had won the two championship games that he lost in 1994 and 2001, as I mentioned, one of those with the Buffalo Bandits and the other with the Toronto Rock, he would have 10 championships and he would be one of only nine, uh, excuse me, one of only seven players in those major sports leagues uh, to have won 10 championships or more. Now, one of the things that made Jim Veltman such a great player, he is known mostly for his loose ball pickups, and in every single season, all 16 of them in the National Lacrosse League, Veltman had over 100 loose balls, except for in 1995, when he had 91 loose balls. Uh, That is just incredible to think about how good he was, and then especially when you think about these seasons where uh, in the early years teams were only playing 8 or 10 or 12 games and he's still reaching such high numbers. And then later in his career, when you look at 2002, 2003, and then even later in 2006, he had over 200 plus loose ball seasons. And when it came to the playoffs, Feltman did not stop picking up loose balls. In fact, over his career, he picked up his postseason career, he picked up a total of 340 loose balls in the playoffs, which is the most in NLL history, and by a wide, wide margin, he is ahead of John Tavares, the Buffalo Bandits head coach now, uh, by 67 loose balls uh, when it comes to playoff loose ball pickups, and of course John Tavares is no longer playing the most by an active player in the postseason is Brody Merrill, and he has 215 loose balls. So Brody is still quite a distance away from Jim Veltman, and who knows how many more years Brody will be playing in the National Lacrosse League. But you know, sometimes with all of that talk about loose ball pickups, and, and you'll hear so much about that in my conversation with Jim Veltman about why he thinks, and yes, I know he was joking a little bit, but why he thinks he was able to pick up so many loose balls throughout his career. It's so interesting that we don't always talk about, and often talk about, I should say, his level of uh, passing the ball to his teammates and getting assists. Feltman recorded 493 loose, or, excuse me, 493 assists during the regular season of his career, regular seasons of his career, and that is actually the 23rd most assists during the regular season all time in the National Lacrosse League, just seven assists shy of becoming the 23rd player in National Lacrosse League history to reach 500 assists during the regular season. And of course, as I think is a growing trend with Jim, he did not stop dishing out the ball to his teammates in the postseason Jim Veltman had 64 assists in the playoffs, which to this day is still the 10th most all-time in playoff history in the National Lacrosse League. And here is an awesome nugget for you. Jim Veltman is one of only two players in National Lacrosse League history to be in the top 10 in postseason assists as well as top 10 in regular season assists. And that other guy is John Tavares, who I just mentioned. And before we just get into the conversation with Jim, and it was such a a conversation that we had, such an amazing one that spans so many different topics, which we'll hear about. And uh, I just wanted to, to point out again how remarkable it is, the amount of loose balls picked up by Jim Veltman in his National Lacrosse League career. He has... Not only did he pick up 2,517 loose balls during the regular season in his career, but he also, with those 340 loose balls picked up during the postseason, that is a total of 2,857 loose balls. That is really a remarkable number. So let's get after it and head deeper into the matrix, and we're already in it already, but let's dive into the conversation with Jim Let's hear more about his history in the game. Let's learn more about what he thinks about these playoffs, particularly when it comes to the 
the games that involve his former teams, although you'll hear which team he has his allegiances for. And uh, it's going to be an amazing series between his former teams, the Buffalo Bandits and the Toronto Rock, games one and two this weekend. So here is the conversation with the NLL Hall of Famer, the greatest, in many people's opinion, loose ball getters all time in National Lacrosse League history, Jim Veltman. You know, one thing I always like to do, and it's it's a lot for for myself, but also for for listeners who may not know or may not remember some of the uh, the amazing histories are pasts of of great NLL players like yourself. You know, what was your journey to get to the NLL? Obviously, uh, Brampton is a is a huge uh, hotbed of lacrosse, and um, that that definitely helps kind of groom you, I guess, into becoming a lacrosse player. But what were your early memories of lacrosse and how did you fall in love with it? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a Brampton kid, as you mentioned. Um, I grew up uh, born and raised in Brampton. I don't live there anymore, but uh, as a kid, I lived there for probably first 25, 26 years of my life. Um, and when you're a Brampton kid, you play lacrosse in the summer and hockey in the winter. So I was one of those Brampton kids. I was born a Dutch immigrant, so my uh, my mom and dad came from Holland. And they didn't know a lot about sports other than soccer. Um, but uh, being a sports-minded parent, they wanted their kids involved. I have four siblings. I have three brothers and a sister. Um, so they wanted all of us involved in sports. Now, that meant a lot of hand-me-downs, kind of equipment, that kind of thing. But... Uh, what it really meant was an opportunity for us to get to meet more kids, um, more kids that had similar sporting interests than we did, um, or as we did. So that was kind of nice. So I grew up there, and then lacrosse was a natural fit, like I said, for most Brampton kids, mm-hmm. uh, summertime sport. And my dad, um, he actually he signed me up to play lacrosse and soccer at the same time. Oh, wow. And uh, I played both. The schedule was a little bit, there was some conflicts. Um, as I got better at both sports, I was playing rep lacrosse and rep soccer at the same time for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and after two years of driving around me and the rest of my brothers and sister, um, he said, you got to choose. We can't keep this going. So I think to his dismay, I, I chose lacrosse. <laughs> I think he wanted me to continue in soccer because he was a love. You know, that was his first love, mm-hmm. but he followed his kids' interests like most parents, and um, he allowed me to play lacrosse, and I did all my minor there. I played junior there. I didn't play for any other junior A team there other than Brampton Excelsiors, and then I ended up playing uh, senior A, it was called back then, uh, for the Brampton Excelsiors, um, uh, but also the Coquitlam Badnax um, until 1992 when... The Buffalo Bandits, I guess, uh, John Rudy, and he gave me a call and said, hey, would you consider trying out? Um, at that time, I was 26 years old. I had already played uh, several years of senior A lacrosse. I had won, uh, uh, you know, two-man cups already by then. Um, so I guess the name was getting out there, and he asked if I wanted to try out for Buffalo Bandits. They were starting a new team in Buffalo, and I said, Sure, why not? Uh, something to do in the winter. I wasn't playing hockey so much then. Um, and back then, it was a lighter schedule, too. I think we only had eight games instead of the 18 that they play now. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a huge commitment. And, um, yeah, it was probably the best thing I did because I could play with amazing players, Derek Keenan, Kevin Alexander, John Tavares, Troy Cordingly, the Kilgore brothers. I mean, uh, it was just an amazing experience. So that's how it started. And, you know, it is amazing and, and something I think is so interesting about you, obviously, before we get into the postseason stuff, is that you you had the opportunity to play with very, very successful teams, both in Buffalo and in Toronto. And, you know, that that is the the Eastern Conference final that's coming up, and that matchup is becoming a, a regular uh, in these modern times in the NLL. So when those two teams go head-to-head, uh, where do your allegiances lie? Are you allowed to say, or do you like to keep that private? <laughs> well, I played more years in Toronto, so I would have to say Toronto, so I guess I'm revealing my allegiance right now. But, <laughs> uh, Buffalo still has a you know, warm spot in my heart just because that's where I started. Uh, I was fortunate enough to win three championships uh, with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
before I went, you know, I, I volunteered for, for a year in Africa. So I had to give up my lacrosse uh, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the following year, uh, again, it was John Meridian and actually Les Bartley, his good friend, who uh, contacted me in Africa and said, hey, when you come back, we'd really like to pick you in the expansion draft and be our captain in, for the Ontario Raiders, which was based in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I was also contacted by Buffalo in Africa as well. And they were saying, hey, listen, we can't wait for you to come back. We have your rights. Uh, it's all good. That was uh, Murray Cooper at the time who took over. Um, so I didn't know who really had my rights. And I was busy in Africa, you know, doing volunteer work. So it didn't really, you know, I didn't really have to sort that out until I got back. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got back, I, I called Dave Suckamore, who was uh, the um, PLPA representative then. I said, listen, I said, this is my dilemma. You know, Buffalo saying I'm their rights and, and the new team, Hamilton or Ontario Raiders, are saying they're going to pick me. So what do I do? And he said, well, who would you rather play for? And I said, well, nothing against Buffalo, but Hamilton's kind of right in my backyard. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I chose Hamilton because I was living in, uh, in Toronto at the time. And it's so interesting. I, I do just want to touch on for a second. Um, what made you decide, obviously, you know, doing volunteer work, uh, especially in a place like Africa in the 90s, which I'm sure, uh, and it's still to this day, uh, they can use all the help that they can get in in some places. What motivated you to to want to take time off in your career? Really, at that point, you were still in the uh, in in a zone which people considered to be the prime of players' career, and also considering the fact that you had won three titles, and even the year before uh, you had gone there and didn't play in 1997. So, what what motivated you to to take that time off? Because uh, that that is a big decision in a player's career. Well, I, I think a few factors. Um, I was a new teacher at the time in Bowmanville, Ontario, and which is just east of Oshawa. And um, I was a teacher there. My wife uh, is also an elementary school teacher. She was a teacher there. And, and when you're uh, a, the first few years of teaching are probably the busiest uh, time of our lives um, in terms of lesson planning and getting classes ready and all that kind of, you know, taking care of classes, kids. I was the head of the phys ed department there and uh, running sport teams after school and you name it. So I was doing volunteer for the school and, you know, fundraising and all that. Kind of, it was a busy time, which was fine. Um, but after a few years of that, my wife and I looked at each other and said, is this what we're in for for the rest of our lives? Like if it is, then maybe we should just take some time off and do what we would like to do, like just something for someone else. And, um, that was a decision we came to together. Um, and we ended up actually uh, the first, we took two years off of our jobs of teaching. And um, mm-hmm. the first half a year we, we spent in the Vancouver downtown east side with the homeless there. And, um, and then we spent a year and a half in Uganda, Africa, uh, with a volunteer organization based out of Ottawa. Um, we got on with voluntary services overseas and they require uh, teachers to be two years of experience and go over there and, and just sort of help the teachers there with new teaching methodologies, um, kind of more cooperative learning type of techniques that we taught the teachers there. Um, yeah, so it was more the motivation just to do something else other than just work for the rest of your life as a teacher, which which I did for the rest of my life. But I'm so glad that I took those two years out of, you know, and we were newly married at the time too, so it was an opportunity to really delve into our own marriage and some of the principles and values that you want to live by um, came out of those two years. Wow, that is uh, incredible. I have two friends um, that actually, uh, one is from Zambia and one is from South Africa and they've been dating, well, they just actually got married and they've been dating uh, before they got married for 10 years and the first couple years after they had been dating, they did, uh, they taught English in Vietnam and you know, that experience. And then they also did some humanitarian work in, in India. And, um, you know, those experiences for them uh, were hugely vital. And it, you know, gave them time to see see the world and, and, and do some good and, you know, uh, help the, the young generations over there to have these amazing experiences. So um, it, it, it's really, really, really cool that you, you did that. And it's great that you and your wife could bond that way. Yeah, no, it was it was a pretty special time in our life, and 
and I even tell like I have a son now who's very busy with lacrosse and, and even my, you know, my nephews who are in lacrosse as well. And my advice to them is lacrosse is great. It's, it's a great opportunity. And I would encourage anybody to go as far as they can in the sport, but there's other parts of life too. And don't forget those other parts of life. And um, I think that's what makes you a complete whole person. It's not just the lacrosse. And, you know, going back to the lacrosse for a sec, although I, I could could not agree with you more that, you know, this is, um, you know, and, and one of the things I hear from all the players I talk to now is that lacrosse gives them the opportunities to to see more, to experience more, and that they're, they're so grateful for the opportunities of that. But going back to your, uh, I guess, return to the NLL at this time, uh, once you came back, what was that like to to be on that Toronto Rock team and and to immediately come into a team that is just as successful as the team in Buffalo that you had just left? Yeah, I mean, we missed the playoffs when we were the Ontario Raiders. We missed the playoffs by one game. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a tiebreaker between us and uh, Philadelphia Wings, and uh, we were so disappointed. And, and what I usually tell people is actually, I, I learn more from losing than I do from winning. Um, winning is, is it, it's easy after a win, why you won, and it's, you know, being elated and celebrating and that kind of thing, but your real true character shows after a loss, and I've had my share of losing as well, I've won my share, maybe more than my share, but um, it's when you lose is when you really find your true character and, and what you do because of it, um, how you come back the next year, and so when we lost that first year as, as the Ontario Raiders, we felt we we were getting hot near the end of the regular season schedule, and we thought if we could get in the playoffs, we could win it all. Uh, Philadelphia just beat us out and end up winning it all that year. So the next year in Toronto with the same group, when we moved from Hamilton to Toronto to become the Rock, we knew we had a solid foundation. We had a fantastic coach in Les Hartley. Um, we had good leadership players like Terry Bowen and Pat Coyle and uh, Colin Doyle and you know Bob Watson. We had just big name players and although we didn't have players that would necessarily like be you know first in the scoring race and and all that kind of stuff we knew we were a good team we, we knew we were good for each other um just everybody brings something to the table and and that's the way we played and then the success started coming in 99 and um and 2000 um the championship that got away was the 2001 when the mm-hmm. Wings beat us in Toronto. Um, but then we came back and won two more years after that in Rochester and Albany. And um, those years were really special. Uh, and to win it one more time when Les was uh, sick and going through cancer and he ended up dying that the day after in 2005 was just something special again. Like that, the memories are there. Not special that he died. It was just you know, the, the moment itself was bigger than itself. And, um, yeah, like I said, you learn more from the losing and then when the winning happens, it's just that much more sweet. I've uh, I've heard that time and time again from, from players and coaches, some guys that have even, that, you know, they're still around. I believe it was, oh, sorry, there's a uh, emergency alert test that's going on on my phone. Um, can you hear me? Yes, I can. We yeah. Have that one today. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I do want to ask you, and you know, I, I had, a, I've gotten to know Ed Como over the years, such a, a great guy. And I know when I uh, featured him on the podcast, he was telling me all about uh, the influence of Les Bartley. And I've heard that again. I mean, he's an absolute, he was an absolute legend and every, the way that he he changed the game, the way that he thought about the game was so unique and so different. From your experience playing for him, what was that like to to be around a guy? Obviously, you mentioned the the leadership group as well with the Rock at that time. But what was it like to to be coached by a man like Les Bartley? Uh, well, it was interesting. My first years with him were in Buffalo in uh, nineteen ninety two, and uh, to be honest, he, he wasn't a very experienced coach. Um, he was like friend with John Meridian, and when we struggled at first, uh, he became the head coach, and, and he introduced new things that a lot of us were like, really? Like, is that what you want us to do? Like, on a two-on-one, you want us to pick the defender instead of just pass it back and forth until we got a good shot? 
like he just tried to introduce these little things and we we were you know skeptical at first um but what we soon learned about last is that he studied the game like he brought in game film he would watch video himself um like legend has it that whenever he would work out uh on a treadmill he'd be watching game film on a tv while he's working out um you know just just to bring all those details into the game and, and ed coleman was a perfect assistant for him because ed was the x and o guy he would he would draw up the plays and and Les would just kind of give him free reign on that. And um, I think what Les was the best at is just being a people person. You you felt like he cared about you more than anybody else. Mm. Meanwhile, he had a whole team to care about. And, but yet he made you feel um, more special than everyone else. Like every time he spoke to you, every time he respected what your, what your input was. He, it wasn't a dictator at all. Uh, he respected our input. But... It always felt like he was steering us in a direction that he wanted to go. I mean, afterwards, you would think about it, and you go, John Gunn, and I, I think that's really what he wanted to hear, but he wanted to hear it from us. Mm-hmm. So we felt like we gave, you know, the contribution that we could give, as opposed to just hearing the coach say, this is the way I want you to play. Um, yeah. He was very unique that way. Um, but, yeah, just a true gentleman. And, you know, he became a real mentor for me and a father figure as well, and, um, you know, just getting to spend the last moments with him and his family and things like that were, were something I'll never forget. And I, I miss him to this day. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's really, uh, you need people in this world who are, you know, kind of willing and wanting to, to change the status quo and who aren't afraid to try new things. And I mean, the, the success that, that you guys had under him, it, it speaks for itself. And, and also the, the words that people continue to say about him to this day also says so much about, about the man that you, that you knew so well. Now, it, it's, it's always hard to, to transition to something else af- after something like that. But, you know, I, I've, I've never spoken to you before, but I've heard so much about you in the sense that I've been around Reed Bowering a lot, uh, being in Vancouver here and seeing what he's done. And time and time again, people relate you or relate him to, to you. They, they put you guys in the same category of, of type of uh, loose ball getter. Uh, I wanted to talk first about why, why was that such an important part of your career or, or how was that such an important part of your career to, to grab as many loose balls as you did? Because it uh pretty extraordinary to, to get over 2,500 loose balls in your career, especially considering, as you said, the shorter seasons when you were uh, in your early years. Well, it's kind of a joke, but I mean, early on in my career, I wasn't a very good defender. And, and the only way I could avoid defending was actually pick up a loose ball on the <laughs> offensive end. I became adept to, you know, learning angles, angles on the boards and how the ball bounced and, how it bounced on concrete was different than on turf and on the wood floor, in, you know, in New Westminster. And, you know, I would really pay attention to all the different kinds of bounces that the ball would take so that I could be there first. Um, and then once you get there, what to do with it was my next kind of thing to learn was, okay, yeah, you've got it, but you're being double teamed. So now what are you going to do? Um, do you need to bat it to somebody or flick it backwards or, but then, you know, I started learning, okay, I have to understand where everyone else on my team is as I'm going in to pick up the loose ball. I have to understand what's what's my escape route, whether I'm going to escape with it or I'm just going to flip it to somebody where the ball escapes. Uh, it doesn't matter, but as long as it does escape safely to our team again so I don't have to play defense. That <laughs> was motivation at first. Yeah. Um, and then as I learned, you know, better defensive techniques – uh, from different coaches, then I wasn't so afraid of the defensive end, but that loose ball kind of mentality and, and how to get a loose ball stuck with me for the rest of my career. And so when you see guys, and, and at first I'll ask you, you know, Brody Merrill has obviously been a, a loose ball magnet himself. Uh, let, let's not mention Reed for just the moment. When Brody passed your uh, NLL record for loose balls in a career, what was that like for you to see someone else uh, be as uh, as good at picking up the ball off the turf? Well, I played against Brody in uh, in the West Finals 
in 2003. I don't know if uh, if you remember that, but I was playing for Victoria Shamrocks at the time, mm-hmm. and we were playing against Coquitlam in the West Finals, and, and Brody and Patrick Mayer were on that team for Coquitlam. Um, and I remember standing, you know, side by side in the face-off, and it felt like, you know, I was kind of passing the torch over to somebody who, in my opinion, was bigger, faster, stronger than me. And I felt it in that series. Like, you know, he could do so much um, in terms of picking up loose balls and things like that. So it was a real honor to play against him in, in such a fierce competition as that Western final was. Um, so, you know, it, it just felt good mm-hmm. when I saw that he actually broke the record. It was like, wow, you know what? Of all the people that I would love to see break the record, it was him. And, and now you're bringing up the name of Reed Bowering. And when I watch him play, he's another one of those Brody Merrill types that um, really, I guess, values that loose ball. Uh, because loose, this is a game of possession. It's I know a lot of people compare it to hockey, but I compare the strategy and the play of it more like basketball, where possession is key. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the more time you have possession, the less time the, you know the other team can score, and all those kind of factors factor in. But um, so to see Reed also be as good as he is at it is is really I don't know. There's just something kind of a proud feeling inside me. Yeah, I mean it's very cool, and then you know, for I, I imagine it does feel very good to know that these guys, you know, they looked up to you, they saw what you could do, and they probably, you know, tried to emulate things that you did on the floor uh, when you were playing, and and obviously now we see the success that they're having. So it is always very cool to see what the next generation can do, and everyone wants to be the next top dog. You know, when we talk about the uh, the end of your career, you know, it was, um, your last championship was 2005. So as you were getting older, uh, 2007, 2008, did you kind of know that it was time for you after, uh, 15, 16 seasons that your NLL career was coming to an end or, uh, what, what do you feel kind of led you to make that decision by that point? years old at the time mm-hmm. uh, actually 42 42 years old and I turned 42 in that last season in 2008 and to be honest a lot like those last two seasons were tough on my body um, I started pulling my hamstring on a regular basis like every year I would pull mm-hmm. my hamstring and that kind of and I would try to get back as soon as I could and I you know I uh, befriended an acupuncturist who was very good for me and you know, instead of the regular four weeks of hamstring takes, he would he would get it down to two or three wow. and get me back four. And but I had to do that numerous times in the last couple of years of my career, and it just you know became time. I, I made a promise to my wife when I when we we married, and she's not a real sports addict like I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, she loves me just for the person who I am, so I really appreciate that about her. And um, she said the deal with me was you can play as long as you want, but I'm not pushing you around in a wheelchair. Um, <laughs> forget that. And yeah. when I started suffering those hamstring injuries, then I knew it was time that, uh, you know what? I got to keep my promise. I, I can walk away, um, let the hamstring heal completely. And, uh, even to this day, when I do quick movements, I'm always wary of that hamstring. Wow. Um, and well, first of all, uh, it's amazing that you found someone who, who could help repair it or, or me, at least make you feel good enough, um, as well as they did. So that, that is remarkable, but I, I definitely understand, uh, the commitment and promise to the wife. Uh, my, my wife is trying to become a sports fan, you know, Preston's picks have, have definitely encouraged her into watching lacrosse a little bit more, but it's, uh, it's definitely my thing and, and she's very supportive. So I, I get that 100%. Now, when it comes to the the post, uh, I guess, after your career, you see the Toronto Rock, they, you know, they go on in, in 2010, lose in the final, 2011, they win. But 2011 was the last time that that Toronto Rock team uh, has won a title. What can you say about the last uh, 12 years of the Toronto Rock franchise. They've obviously been incredibly successful in that time, um, but as someone, as you said earlier, that your allegiance is with them, what has it been like 
for you to see them be successful but not be able to win the amount of championships as you guys did in the early days? Yeah, well, I have to say, and, and this isn't an excuse, I, I think it's a little harder today. Like, there's <laughs> more teams. Um, I think the talent is is better in terms of just talent-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, like the new draft picks coming in, they're very talented players. Um, I, I think the mental side of the game, maybe that's where uh, the difference is, is that there is a mental side to winning championships that people have to understand mm-hmm. and maybe learn and grow into, um, as I did. I didn't win right away. Yeah, I lost it, like I said earlier. Um, and that's okay. Um, but to get over those hurdles, it just takes some time. And I, I see the Toronto Rock team now, like they're always been on the cusp. I mm-hmm. think Jamie does. Jamie Dowick does a great job of putting together the strongest team that he can. Um, I think people, you know, he's made Toronto a very uh, comfortable and good place to play. I think it's an attractive place to play for a lot of players, mm-hmm. not just because a lot of them are from Southern Ontario, but but also because of facilities that uh, he has used of um, and that he's made for those players. I didn't have that, but I did have the comfort of being close to home. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was nice for me and, and to have family and friends be able to watch me on a consistent basis is there. So there's a bit of that pressure that goes with it. And mm-hmm. that's like that mental side of the game um, is so important to understand that it's, it's not an easy championship to win. It's not just about talent. It's about having the right pieces. And then once you have the right pieces, about everybody being on the same mental page or level, um, because it is a grind. Uh, the, the season's a grind to begin with, and now the playoffs are even making it harder with this best two out of three. Mm-hmm. Although I like, um, because I think the more games you play against each other, um, the more definite you have a, a winner. Mm-hmm. Um, and the team that deserves to win. That's why I like the best of seven. NHL playoffs. Yeah, I think after four, you know, four wins, that's a definite, you know, winner right there. So, um, but I know lacrosse because of logistics and all kinds of things, it's it's tough to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the Toronto Rock are right there, and, and I think this year they have a really good chance. And I think a lot of those players, yes, they've won in other places, uh, whether it be in the summer or minor lacrosse. But mm-hmm. it, it's another thing to win at this level because I I think this is the best lacrosse in the world. And it is so interesting because, you know, uh, we talk about these teams, uh, Toronto and Buffalo being on the cusp so many times, but obviously, like we mentioned, Toronto last winning in 2011, Buffalo uh, last winning uh, in 2008. And then if you look at the West, it's so interesting because uh, you got two teams that maybe aren't always in that conversation of, oh, this team's going to win it every year, but Calgary wins in 2019 and and Colorado wins last year. So it's much more familiar to those West Coast teams than it is to those East Coast teams. So I think that's a cool little uh, side story that's happening in the East Conference final yet again. Now, I I don't want to put you on the spot, and obviously I know who you'd probably like to win in these series, but when you look at these, these matchups here in the conference finals, uh, do you have any kind of predictions or ideas of how you think things are going to go? These, it, I think most people would agree that these four teams that are remaining seem to be the four strongest and most complete teams in the NLL. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think Colorado upset uh, the San Diego team in the quarterfinals. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I also know who's coaching them. And Pat Coyle was a, a friend of mine. He was a teammate of mine. Um, I think Pat plays... You know, a lot of attention to the details of the game, but I think he's more interested in the mental side of the game. Uh, as he showed in last year's championship, like the players that they lost and the talent that they lost, you know, not just during the season and losing, you know, Ryan Lee and then in the playoffs losing Eli McLaughlin, but they still found a way to win. And to me, that's the mental side of the game. Um, where, you know, you got Kurt Malowski on the other side, he's detail oriented, he's, he's very script. Uh, he likes his team to play a certain way, and he's got a lot of talent on that team too. So, I, I you know, it's kind of a toss-up for me between those two. Mm-hmm. And then look at the East Conference. I, I see two very even strength teams. Like when you look talent up and down, you see the goaltending is very similar. Uh, all four teams that are still in it have really good goaltending, which makes a big difference in this game. 
we had Bob Watson all those years, so I was fortunate about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I just see Toronto and Buffalo being like neck and neck in terms of their offense, in terms of their defense, uh, in terms of the goaltending. When you pick apart the game, it is going to come down to details, uh, as it did last year. Um, you know when these two teams met. So um, I don't know who's going to win, to be honest, in, in terms of the East. And like I said, in the West, I see it kind of a mental game against a detailed game. Yeah, it's uh, and and you know it's been interesting talking to to a lot of these guys uh, in the run up to this series. Uh, the the fact that there's two games, uh, potentially two deciding games. Uh, only two days apart plays a huge factor, especially when you include travel. So I, I definitely agree, and I think the majority of fans and people love that there's a, a series here, best of three, to really decide who the winner is. But the the travel and all the things that come with that are going to play a huge factor. So it's going to be very interesting uh, this week uh, as we see those series unfold. I did just want to leave you with one question. You know, I was talking to to Dallas Elliott yesterday, a guy who you obviously faced, and and based on what it sounds like from you, he uh, gave you some heartbreak both in 1998 and 2001. Um, but uh, what what do you feel has uh, or what has changed the most? Uh, in the NLL since you played, and and how different is it, and is it fair to compare uh, the eras of the NLL considering how different they are? Well, I think goaltending wise, equipment's a lot different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot. It was a lot less. I saw more of the net when I was, you know, first starting in the '90s than when I was in the mid 2000s. So that, that made a big difference. I mean, I know they've made the net a little bit bigger since then. Um, in the, I mean, in the mid '90s when I was playing, it was more about entertainment. Like they, the owners didn't mind that there was a lot of fighting and a lot of hard hits, and they almost discouraged referees from calling, you know, penalties that were really penalties. To be mm-hmm. honest, like you could get away with a high stick, and you're kind of like, wow, they're not calling this. And mm-hmm. I know entertainment value in that and I understand some fans go for that reason but to be honest it was you know scary at times and I probably had my share of concussions um, that were undiagnosed and um, where now it seems like there's more player safety and, and I think that's a good thing mm-hmm. uh, for everyone involved obviously uh, there's less fighting in the game um, you know there's less wild kind of play uh, we started in the 90s with kind of you're playing defense and offense, not just one side of the floor. So that, you know, that changed. That that part of the game has changed. Like, so, so much has changed. But like I said, one one thing I noticed is, is the players that are coming out of college or, you know, out of the junior A ranks or whatever and getting drafted are so much more, they bring so much more talent um, than what I remember Um when I was, you know, playing in the 90s, you'd have some weaker players and some stronger players, and you, you kind of blended that mix. Um, where now, I think it's a little bit different. I think you, you have so much more talent. But I think the goaltending, it's mostly the equipment size has made a big difference. Mm-hmm. And there's goalies and there are reaction goalies, although there are still a few of the reaction goalies still left. And I noticed Ryan Hartley is kind of bringing that back into the game as well. Yeah, he's uh, he's phenomenal. I uh, I got a chance to talk with him a couple or last week, and uh, really unbelievable mind, uh, so focused. The one thing that I I took away from him in terms of his determination and his uh, high standards for himself is, you know, I had asked him about tough times that he had gone through in his career, and he he it was uh, so. Uh, tough and and I I dare to say even emotional for him to talk about his experience of being benched in midget lacrosse and how that impacted him and to hear that from a guy you know at that age uh to be that influenced by you know not playing uh when you want to be out there and then uh you see what he's doing now and you know only 24 25 years old it's uh it's pretty remarkable and you know same could be said about Christian Del Bianco who or Christian Del Bianco I should say um, you know, he's he's only 25, turning 26, and, and those are two reaction goalies that are phenomenal in this league. 
Yeah, and they're so fast. And I, I mean, that's what I remember about Dallas Elliott. He's, you know, his reaction time was unbelievable. You'd, you'd fake one side and you would, you would actually bite on your fake and you'd think, oh, okay, now I got the open net. And something would come out of nowhere, whether it's a stick or an arm or, you know, a chicken wing here or whatever. It was mm-hmm. unbelievable how fast he was, uh, especially in that championship game that I. You know, still think he got away in 2001. Like, he was obviously the MVP of the game. We, I think we outshot him by 29. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I have to say, it's. I, I, I mean, for me, it's very different because I didn't go through these same experiences as you. But, you know, it, it, it's not only palpable, but the way that you guys can remember and describe uh, some of these losing experiences, even if it's 20-plus years uh, uh, removed from that situation, uh, you know, to your point, it really speaks to the fact of how much losses can really uh, impact a, a player's future. Yeah, no, for sure. And like I said, I, I think you learn more from losing than winning. I, I'm convinced of that. Um, I felt it in my own life. Um, and that's okay. Like, it, it's okay to lose. It's, it's sort of, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do next year? Um, you can't just keep going back year after year. Uh, doing the same thing, otherwise you're gonna have the same result. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that's what good, talented players—that's what they do. They think about every aspect of the game, not just you know blame it on somebody else or it's goaltender's fault or coach's fault or anything like that. It's about looking within and, and making yourself better. And if everybody does that, and everybody comes back in your, next year a little bit better, mm-hmm. then the whole team is better. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, Jim, thank you so much for taking so much time to, to chat with me. Sorry, this uh, conversation went on a little long. I uh, I enjoyed every minute of it. And I appreciate you sharing and, and being open with me and, and everything. It's, uh, it's awesome to, to hear stories of the past and, and hear how things have changed. Uh, I, I don't think that we look back enough uh, at the history and, and everything that so many of, of guys like yourself paving the way for, for what we have today. It's pretty special. So thank you for that, and thank you again for the time. No, it was my pleasure, and uh, thanks for all that you do too. I mean, bringing that, you know, the media side of things to, to everybody is really important for this league to grow, and I appreciate everything that you do. Thank you so much. And, and just on that note, you know, I don't know what it was like, and, I, and I'll actually ask you now, is, you know, a lot of players, uh, I've, I've been so... Uh, fortunate for them to to be so open and honest with me uh, in interviews, on podcasts and things like that. And you hear that with not just me, with so many people in the media. Back in your playing days, uh, how different was that? I mean, obviously, maybe there might, there might not have been as much media attention at the time, but uh, how would you compare the, the uh, relationship between players and media now to players and media then? I, I think the media now, because of, you know, these different platforms that you have with, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, and all that, it's just more. Mm-hmm. There's more of it. Um, so I think that's good for the sport. I think it's good for players to get recognized because they ultimately kind of drive this league. Um, so I think it's better. Uh, when I was playing, it was more local. It was like, okay, you know, I'd drive into Buffalo, play my game and talk to reporters, and then I'd leave and do my teaching kind of life um and same within toronto it was it was wonderful when it lasted but it was sort of temporary for that weekend and then during the week i was kind of left alone to do my own thing mm-hmm. where now it's constant with like i said that and having cell phones and just access to media um it's just that much more better i think for for everyone involved if you're trying to grow a league like we are a hundred percent. Well, Jim, again, thank you so much. And, um, I, I really appreciate the time and, uh, it's going to be exciting to see what, uh, what your Toronto rock do, but also how your, your former team, the Buffalo bandits do. I know you'll probably be watching every minute of that series. So thank you so much. Thank you so, so much, Jim, for joining me for that extended conversation. It was so great talking to you and, and getting to know you and hearing about your history. And I hope For you, the listeners, you guys feel the same way. Such an interesting guy. And for the fact that he uh, took that little hiatus to do such great work and then come back and still be so successful is is such an impressive thing to see. And it's really uh, 
incredible to see a guy not only give so much on the floor, but off it as well. And uh, really awesome again to talk to you. Now that does bring us to the Lacrosse Matrix podcast poll of the week, where I asked you very just simply with the numbers that have been laid out for you. And also, of course, you know, Jim Veltman's success picking up loose balls off that turf. Is he the greatest loose ball getter in NLL history? 84% of you said yes, and 16% of you said no. So thank you guys so much for voting there, and it is pretty clear-cut to you guys that he is the greatest loose ball getter of all time. Although, as you heard in the conversation, it is such an honor for him to watch guys like Brody Merrill or Reed Bowring or even other guys like Zach Courier to be able to do what they're doing in today's game. And he definitely loves seeing guys being that tenacious and that good at getting loose balls as well. So that is going to do it for episode number 55 of the Lacrosse Matrix podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again this week for another awesome episode of the Lacrosse Matrix podcast. The last episode, if you want to go back and check it out, on Dallas Elliott is on Spotify. So go check that episode out. Hearing from two legends and their different perspectives and all of those things, it's really interesting to kind of break down and understand what is going on in these NLL playoffs and how it differs from previous playoffs. And as I said in the last episode, and it's something I just believe firmly, How can we move forward if we don't understand and appreciate the past? Obviously, there are some things that work better than others, and you make adjustments. And so it is important for us to understand what happened in the past so we can do better in the future, or we can do the exact same awesome things that happened in the past, and we can do those now. So enjoy Game 1 of the East Conference Finals, Friday night, May 12th. Buffalo Bandits, Toronto Rock, that is going to be another awesome series. Last night, Thursday, May 11th, we saw the Colorado Mammoth have a absolute defensive duel against the Calgary Roughnecks. Please go check out my Twitter at Adam Levy NLL if you want some awesome nuggets on that game. And of course, there's awesome nuggets and quotes from coaches, players, and staff all the time, seven days a week on my Twitter if you're interested in learning more nuggets. So definitely go check that out if you don't already. But please, that game was so unbelievable defensively, and uh, it's going to be uh, an amazing series there between Colorado and Calgary. But tonight, we head out east for that action. So enjoy every second of that game tonight. And the two games that are on Saturday, both game twos will be back-to-back on Saturday. So please... Don't make any other plans on Saturday night because all you'll want to be doing is watching Game 2's of National Lacrosse League playoff action, conference finals action. I will talk to you guys next week and enjoy the games and enjoy awesome lacrosse, everybody. Have a great one.